This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Whakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia Sam. How's it going? So, Dr. Karatai, started a new job. How's it going? Yes. Oh, my gosh, Sam. It's so cool. You know, we talk about the impact of our qualifications, but nothing prepared me for the impact of getting my DPP and actually finishing that journey. And I've just had my whakatau on Friday to start my new role with GNS, uh, hosted by um, our wānanga here, Te Whare Wānanga o Awanui Arangi. And uh, then I met my whole research team uh, for our leaders meeting yesterday uh, and met all of the scientists, all the physical scientists from around the country who are in the team and uh, and also the team that I'll be leading for the social science research. So, and it was just, do you know what? I really, sometimes you can be in, as a social scientist in spaces with physical scientists and they, they just don't quite get it. And there's a divide, but there was no divide yesterday. It was this most beautiful, cohesive, wonderful, exciting experience of, you know, building a platform for us all to go from here. So yay for the DPP, yay for scientists, yay for new jobs, <laughs> and yay for v- Victoria McLennan, who is our guest today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, Sam, we're really lucky to have Victoria McLennan with us today. She is the CEO of IT Professionals and a digital equity advocate, and we talk about that so much. So it's a real joy to have you here today, Victoria. Vic, thanks for joining us. Kia ora, and thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. Kia ora, Vic. You're coming to us from a hotel room? A hotel room in downtown Auckland, not where I usually reside, but I'm spending my whole week in Auckland this week. So, And I'd have to say it's warmer here than it is in Wellington, where I usually am. So where are you usually? So just before lockdown, like right before lockdown, um, my partner and I moved from having lived in Kandala, Wellington, for 25 years up the Kapiti Coast. So 65 kilometres from, from Wellington City, we now live closer to the beach, closer to great places to cycle and where it's usually about, I want to say, five degrees warmer than Wellington City. So we've been asking people how their bubble life was. I know that's turning into history now, but we're going to carry on asking it. How was your bubble life? Mine was really mixed. Um, So I guess the highlight or the main event of my bubble life was I had emergency gallbladder removal surgery in lockdown. Um, And so that was fascinating. That was when you think the health system was really scared. They weren't taking in patients. You couldn't have visitors. And I 
think I had amazing service because the surgeons had nothing else to do. And I arrived, they pumped with morphine, they figured out what was wrong with me and they whipped my gallbladder out the same day. So, and I don't think that would have happened usually. So that was great, but it was also quite a dominant thing in my lockdown. Um, But the other thing about bubble life was I live in a small subdivision, a 65-house subdivision, and we really got to know our community. Even though we kept a distance, everyone was out in the street all the time, riding their bikes, kids playing in the street, and really got to know the rest of our community during lockdown, which was a really unexpected kind of benefit. When you're in hospital with the surgery, of course the, the actual medical bits happened okay, but did they manage to pull off the 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 not the feeling of connection, but the the caring, the, the sort of the wraparound care while they couldn't get close to you? I think the nurses, um, and, I've he- and I heard this from nurses at the time, were quieter than they'd ever been. And so therefore, they were more attentive, probably. There were less people in the surgical ward. Um, there were less, less people there for post-op recovery. And so they had quite a different time. One of the other things that happened when I had my surgery was my son and his partner were still living in London and they'd been there for six years and it was getting really scary in the UK about the same time as I had my surgery and which was about four weeks or five weeks into our lockdown and and so they were making big decisions about do we stay do we quit our jobs in our flat and come home and so middle of the night when I was recovering or the next night when I couldn't sleep I was able to be chatting with my son (laughs) online and having those really meaningful conversations, which was a side, you know, just a byproduct of the experience that I hadn't expected. And then soon after that, we ended up with two 30-year-olds living with us for, it turned out to be six months. They they came back, moved in, didn't leave, loved being near the beach, loved being sort of the, the Kiwi outdoor life after living in London flats for six years. But sadly, they have just left again, or well, sadly for me, um, you know, after 18 months back in, in Wellington, I just found New Zealand was just a bit small, cost of living's a bit high. So they've gone to Australia this time. So when you weren't doing family things or on the beach or being sick, how was lockdown in terms of working? Were you working uh, during the lockdown? So for me, that was before I took on this role with IT professionals. So I was still in my portfolio life. So I had directorships. So I had companies that I was responsible for. The IT company or the, the data services business that I own um, was, was you know, full throttle doing work and government sending people home and cancelling our projects and, and all of those activities. But something that really filled my time in lockdown that meant I was in back-to-back meetings all the time was how the spotlight just got shone on the digital divide and um and and um learners were being sent home our Konga were being sent home from school with no devices and no ability to do online school programs the ministry of education after a lot of pressure from community um ended up funding one device for high school aged children and their family but that didn't even scratch the surface so a lot of my lockdown time was spent with some fabulous friends and colleagues setting up an initiative called DECA, the Digital Equity Coalition Aotearoa. And we um, we were running hui with all of these amazing community groups and school teachers and marae and people all over the country that were focused on how do we get affordable connectivity, how do we get devices, and how do we help with digital skills with people who just didn't have access to them. So a lot of my that kind of lockdown and moving 
into those various lockdowns in 2020 was forming DECA and standing that initiative up. Because you could have just sat on the beach. What drives you in terms of that? <laughs> what what drives you in terms of that that equity? So I think I don't really know what drives me, but I have this kind of ethos that I live by, and that is that I believe that everyone in Aotearoa, New Zealand, deserves an opportunity to realise their potential, and that really drives me personally. And so the first thing I will say to people is, how can I help, rather than I can't help you. That's kind of my attitude in the way that I they oper- I operate. And taking on IT professionals is about me wanting to change the face of the digital technology industry, bringing diversity inclusion, equity and belonging into our industry and workplaces so that we can have people who don't we don't normally see in digital technology also able to thrive and be successful. But I think that whole background and ethos and why am I like that is just from my upbringing and my parents and they were always, um, you know, on the school committees, on the sidelines at sport, at school camps, you know, they were those parents that were really involved and always offering their time and generous and so I think I learned that that was instilled in me and then that's the way that I've behaved as a result, I guess. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Chris Knox, not given lightly. Why this one? So I I was really drawn to this, this song. It came out when I left New Zealand for my OE. So it kind of coincided with a big change in my life. And the really funny thing about going on my OE and going to London, I was reflecting with... Um, my my long since ex husband we got married far too young um who's who's one of my best friends in life I was reflecting with him the other day about our time living over there and how we only went to Kiwi bands we got really nostalgic and so um I got really really drawn to this song and then when later in life when various events have happened in my life and even when Chris Knox had his terrible stroke and it it just the the lyrics and the family ties and how much he loves his 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 wife and his children um, really speaks to me. I really love the song. Hello, my friend. It's morning. Time to wake now Your body and mind Entwined We'll have to break now But I want your flesh Your warmth to stay beside me Oh how I wish You could be deep inside me Show me your eyes Your love most tender Finish, 
technology and um, my first job was installing FPOS terminals driving around the South Island when FPOS terminals were new to New Zealand and I was and I had studied accounting at Nelson um, Polytechnic which is now Nelson Marlborough Institute of Technology um, and and so I fell into tech and then I had amazing amazing more and more technical roles in my career but I never worked with any other women and um, and so I became in my 20s I became as and I had young children I became this really strong passionate advocate for changing the gender diversity of our industry and then as I got older going into my 30s and 40s I, I guess the shutters kind of opened in my eyes or I had the 
the the you know that veil peeled off um I started my own Te Ao Māori journey and learning New Zealand history and learning about the economic divide in New Zealand and colonialism and I started to to think about how can I really participate in affecting change and where I can participate is digital um, things, all things digital because that's my background and that's what I know and love and I'm conversant in. And, um, and so it was really in my 40s that I really got into this digital equity advocacy space. I didn't really know what it was, but supporting small grassroots initiatives and how do they scale, how do they reach government funding, how do they reach philanthropic funding. And, I, and that's where I've been spending a lot of my time over the years. I chair a fabulous charity called Digital Future Aotearoa, and we run a couple of programs. One of them is Recycle a Device, where we teach high school students how to rebuild devices and then they distribute them into their local communities and it's just an amazing program um, and we also have a program called Otatahi Outreach which is focused on Christchurch um, working with Kura specifically and helping teachers become really confident so that they can en- engage their learners in digital technology um, education and so we, have, we run those kind of programs and I love um, the partnerships that we've formed and the other organisations that we work with to extend that reach. So, yeah, I don't really know how I got involved, but that's why I got involved. One of the barriers that Sam and I have identified in the work that we've been doing in that space is a language barrier that kind of comes from, um, not. it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a an English versus Māori language barrier, it's the language of tech. For example, if you talk about mechatronics as a subject at school, if you don't have any kind of tech background or know anyone with a tech background, you wouldn't have you wouldn't be able to unpack what that word mechatronics means to know what that subject is. How do we how do we evolve the language of tech so that it's more accessible for people who don't have a tech background or support in that space? This is something I contemplate a lot because we as an industry have almost created this language ourselves to become slightly elitist, to help our salaries stay high, to ensure that what we do is really confusing to everyone else. And and I feel like this is the time that we need to break that down. And Sam's heard me prattle on about this before. We also make it really hard to choose digital technology as a career. There are so many education pathways. There are so many different jobs. I call it the wild, wild west. It's just not an easy thing to engage with. And when you talk about the language difference between te reo Māori and English, and there are amazing people like Hanarangi Edwards, who I've, I've worked with in the past, on who who are creating that translation. Um, I totally agree with you that the basic found you know the foundations of understanding our language are really challenging. So it's a complex issue, but I think it needs almost like a movement or a wave of people who are all moving in the same direction and and demystifying tech. And I've been having conversations recently with people um, about when I was young and I was at primary school, there were posters on the walls that said girls can do anything. Um, And that was quite empowering. I remember that really clearly, that in the classroom there was a girls can do anything poster. And 
And that was about powering um, young wahine into thinking about different kinds of careers. Well, it's almost like we need to take that same sort of approach to tech and really breaking it down and simplifying it. And you want to solve climate change challenges, you want to save the planet, come and work in tech, you know, make it really much more accessible and easier for people to understand. Yes, oftentimes people will... Um, if they have a practical application for the learning, be much more willing to undertake the learning and also to stay engaged in it if they can yeah. see something useful for it. And mechatronics is a funny one because there's unlimited uses for <laughs> mechatronics. It's so important. And yet uh, my prediction is for the class that my son Jack starts next year at high school, he will be one of two Māori in that class because wow. him and his best friend are taking it. But I doubt that there'll be any others because there is this barrier which means if we think about that going from um, the start of high school through to the end of high school they can do it all the way through but will they and if they do then it's probably only going to be the two of them who will then keep it going at university as well to Māori out of the class so there's a real if we don't get our kids right from the beginning of high school it's really hard to get them later on especially now that the curriculum um, kids are uh, encouraged to pick their pathway right at the beginning of high school now yeah and we need to get into the hearts and minds earlier than that but a lot of that is about parents understanding and most average New Zealanders um, would never have thought about technology careers because what they do is quite different they might use technology but quite different and so yeah there's a massive education piece that we as a collective really need to undertake I agree. And I'm up for supporting, championing, helping that happen. Really, really am. That's, that's something I'm passionate about. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nga mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, koutou I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all, the last nearly three years have been so stressful and trying and we've had to learn so many new ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling. And for us all, we're still in a process of recovery and processing and recombobulating and reconfiguring and finding our way in a new form of consensus reality and indeed navigating our own individual realities as we experience life post-frenzied pandemic response. Of course, we've been very fortunate here in Aotearoa, New Zealand to find ourselves in a good position. And whilst there have been so many shifts and changes in all our lives, we have been able to get through this very difficult time relatively unscathed. I know that for myself there have been many changes in my life and as we all know when we experience these times of 
trouble and pain and suffering. Of course, whilst they are really hard and difficult, and in the midst of these times we may feel completely shaken and destabilised, we may feel in a state of panic, we may feel in a state of overwhelm as the unknown seems to completely surround us. However, with time and with patience, often we can find that these times of difficulty have tempered us in the crucible, as it were, and the fire, the intensity of this pain has has allowed those aspects of our lives and of our character which are perhaps unnecessary for us now, no longer reflective of our of our true selves, those parts that are now redundant, those parts of us which are now false, are burned away and we are refined, we are emerging, streamlined and able to more authentically present ourselves to the world. And of course this can be some comfort to us when we are in times of darkness and we are in times of transformation and transition to know that when we re-emerge it will be in, in a much stronger and much more resilient form and of course the living world offers us this reflection this process over and over again we see it reflected this process of metamorphosis that takes place in the darkness and then new forms emerge into the light and it is very powerful it is something that we all experience. So I really hope for you, wherever you're at in your process of recovery and metamorphosis, that you're finding the support and nourishment that you need. And you are reflecting on times in your life when you have made these changes and you have made these transformations and transitions before and emerged triumphant, resplendent, and ready to go in new directions. It's very exciting. I know for myself and many people I know that having re-emerged, of course, we are wanting to do things quite differently and we are choosing to express ourselves in new ways and communicate in new ways and this is very exciting. So I really hope for you that there has been a return of your creative energy and that you're really enjoying all these new ways of doing, seeing, being, feeling in the world course being part of the show is a great honor and pleasure for me thank you all for having me and i'll talk to you again soon thanks so much Kakite. you were listening to blowing bubbles we're talking with vic mclennan who is the chief executive of it professionals which we skipped over vic what's it professionals so it professionals is an industry peak body and the members are people who work in the digital technology industry. And it was started over 60 years ago as the Computer Society. And if I think about that back then, 60 years ago, I imagine a bunch of men um, who would get together in their local, probably, bar and have a chat about all things technology when computers weren't such a prevalent thing in our lives. But the organisation has continued. And I took the opportunity and was lucky enough to be selected 
by the board to be the CEO of IT Professionals um, six months ago now, so in March 2022. And I haven't had a day job in over 15 years. So this is a, this was a big step for me to take on a CEO role and have a board that I report to. Um, but what I really am passionate about is changing the face of our industry and making our industry accessible and open and all of the things we've just been talking about. So, and I see that being connected with the people and helping lift the capability of the people who work in the industry and having these great connections into the education system is a fabulous place for me to try and affect that change. When you're talking about things like um, equity, TL Maori, they're kind of progressive ideal things. They're kind of hard to disagree with the with why you'd want to do them, but then quite often people just don't do them. Is is it a challenge or how are you approaching actually making this like something that the industry, the professionals actually do and not just nod at and give you a nice smile? So there are complex answers to that question. So there are there are two sides to the current skills and talent shortage. One is the pipeline and how many people we're training and bringing into the country. But the other side is employers and their behaviour and their organisations. And I am sick to death, I'm sorry, of hearing Pākehā males who are tech company owners and leaders saying, I would employ a wahine Māori tomorrow, but I can't find one. But the reality is if they employed a fabulous young wahine Māori into their company, she would not have a good experience because they're often a really what I call the tech bro culture and the environments are all very similar. Young men who have beards, wear jeans and and T-shirts who behave in a certain way. So there's a big education piece that I'm starting to embark on with employers and how do we change those behaviours. And many employers are up for it, but they just don't know what to do. They're asking for help. So that's, you know, fantastic that many employers are up for it. The other thing I guess to say that I've been really surprised by, Sam, is I um, I write comms every week. I have a newsletter that goes out every week to nearly 10,000 people, and I write a few blogs during the week. And I've, I've introduced Te Reo Māori into my communications. And when I first did that, when I first started, I was shocked by the hate mail that I got. So there are people within our community and our digital technology community who were aggrieved in some way by my introducing a use of te reo Māori into my everyday communications. That's calmed down quite a bit, and certainly the positive messages I get have outweighed the negative, but there are some, it's almost like there's an older generation of Pākehā men who are scared of the use of te reo, who are also scared of the use, uh, scared of change, and, um, and we're probably quite confronted by me, the first woman to be the CEO of IT Professionals, turning up as well. So there's definitely a hearts and minds thing that we still need to achieve within those who work in the digital technology industry, who need to be the mentors of new people that are coming into the industry as well. So there's some really complex challenges and some terrible behaviours out there. Talking about scared of change, we've seen a pretty traumatic couple of years and we've seen a rise of misinformation and disinformation. What do you see as the role of IT profession and IT professionals in turning that around? So I think we do have a strong role. We've, we've 
we here in New Zealand, I'm really proud of the Prime Minister and the Christchurch core work that she's she's led the charge on. But we here in New Zealand have tended to take this attitude of misinformation and disinformation is spread by the big tech platforms. We can't control that. You know, it's a problem over there. Thank you very much. Let's all talk about it being someone else's problem. But actually, we who work in the industry, who are who understand the language of technology, who understand the impacts of misinformation, disinformation, who understand the impacts of giving all of your data away to these big platforms who then on sell it and commercialise it in different ways. We have a role to play in educating everyone else in our lives, our whānau, our neighbours. Um, so I think we have a we need to really change that kind of dialogue away from blame these big American Silicon Valley companies to we need to take a local approach to this and how do we actually help um, everyone in the country become better informed. Do you think that the IT professional in New Zealand is distinct? Is there something about the, the people that we have or perhaps need that we could say that that's what it takes to be a New Zealand IT professional? That's a really interesting question because I've, I'm often involved in conversations with government government about what's distinct and unique about the New Zealand digital technology industry and what we can export and take to the world. And those things that are distinct and unique about us is we do have Indigenous peoples, we do have a treaty, we do have obligations that we need to consider. And there is an amazing emerging Māori tech um, cohort of companies that take such a different view to the way that they design and build software and hardware products. So so the the IT professional in New Zealand embracing their own Te Ao Māori journey, I think, is a characteristic that, that is quite unique. The other characteristics about the IT profession in New Zealand and ergo the professionals who work in it is we're in a tiny country at the arse end of the world where um, global warming and climate change issues are really, really going to be personified here and particularly for our Pacific neighbours. And so if we take a lens of solving those problems for ourselves and taking leadership there, then again, an IT professional in a New Zealand context and companies who are producing um, software and hardware for this profession, applying those lenses creates another unique element or an aspect of us. So I think there's a real opportunity for that. I guess the third thing to say, which has been kicking around for a while, is we're one of the most trusted nations, one of the least corrupt. Um, so trusting our people and trusting our capability. And we do produce amazing, amazing people um, with amazing skills and capability. But having that kind of trust tick on it, that this was produced in New Zealand, therefore you can trust that the algorithm isn't going to do anything uh, or there isn't any kind of corruption in it. Um, actually exploiting that a bit, I think, is the other aspect that we could do quite uniquely here. Which means moving all the things like Mataranga Maori ethics, sustainability, to not being compliance, but being things to celebrate and to lead with. We've been trying that yeah. in, in education. Do you think it's working? And is it? Are you seeing it in, in business? Starting to in its infancy, but certainly um, I, I do get accused by my friends outside of Wellington for being in my woke Wellington government bubble, but um, certainly in my woke Wellington government bubble, yes. Um, 
but that permeating out into the rest of the country is the real challenge. And whenever I'm in Auckland, I rarely notice the stark difference in very hard-edged commercial behaviours up here that we don't necessarily have the same in, in Wellington. And then provincial New Zealand has a whole lot of other different challenges. Um, but you're definitely starting to see that change occurring. So what's your approach? Is it just to keep going with that vision, that positive message? So yes, that's my approach to also influence um, the government to spend money in these spaces. So one success, I guess, since I've started is um, there's a tender up by MB at the moment called the Domestic Tech Story. And that is um, to spend some money on telling the story of digital technology and all of those issues around breaking down the language and making it easier for young people to understand. So some amazing companies will award, will be awarded that tender and there'll be a concerted effort to engage people in the possibilities of digital technology in a really positive way. So um, so yes, positive message to everyone who wants to listen, but um, I, because I live in Wellington, I have this opportunity influencing gov- government to invest in this space is the other thing that I do. There are a few things that I haven't been successful with. There's one that I'm about to start lobbying the Prime Minister on, and that is um, during lockdown, uh, the Ministry of Education put an affordable connectivity program in place so that there's affordable internet for a, a, a number of whānau in the country. Um, there, that was COVID funding and that funding's coming to an end at the end of this year. Um, I and many others strongly believe that the government should continue to pay for that. And so um, the Ministry of Education is saying, well, we can't, it's not an education cost, it's a connectivity cost. So I'm about to start a lobbying campaign to get that extended because otherwise these families will get um, cut off because it, it is, for many people, just too expensive to pay to have a connection into their home. We have a, um, a something going in here in the Eastern Bay Plenty that was driven by East Bay Reap. They went to government and said, we have got families who are so isolated, especially every time it rains and, and the hill falls on their road, so isolated that their only connection to the world is the internet. And so they've managed to get funding. So I really strongly recommend that you connect with East Bay yep. Rep here in Fakatani because they, <laughs> yeah, they've got some magic happening around here, that's for sure. Brilliant. And there's these lovely little pockets of magic happening, but we need you know a nationwide set of magic happening now. Here, here. Let's take another pocket of magic. Let's have a second of your music choices. Let's have the national. I am easy to find. Why this one? So I live with someone who's mad about music. Honestly, if he could sit at home and listen to a stereo, it was vinyl all day. He probably would. Um, And we listen to a lot of contemporary music. We listen to classical music. We listen to all kinds of music. Um, He and some of my friends have long been fans of the national, but I never was. It was just kind of one guy in a band. And then they released this whole album I made to find, and every song has a woman singing on it. And um, and for and and I really really enjoyed this album. And I know it's a couple of years old now, but it's my favourite track off that album. I was going to pick a Taylor Swift song because I I am a bit of a fan of some of her more mature music recently. When I was thinking about contemporary music to share, but I thought no, I will um, let you listen to this instead. Hello, 
down I need to find some lower thinking If I'm gonna stick around I'm not going anywhere Who do I think I'm kidding? I'm still standing in the same place Where you left me standing I am easy Skies, an academy of lies. You never were much of a New Yorker, it wasn't in your eyes. If you ever come around this way again, you'll see me standing in the sunlight in the middle of the street. I am easy.
Vic, we have seen lots of changes in the last couple of years. It's nearly three. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Um, I think uh, it's really interesting. I was run by a reporter a few weeks ago and she asked me what the future of work is going to look like and what's going to be different. Um, so there are a couple of things that in the certainly in the capability and the skills space that I hope is going to stick. One of them is prior to COVID, um, employers in the digital technology industry, and I know in other professional services industries, were reliant on immigration to fill their vacancies. And they were always looking for senior staff and they were using the immigration lever. Um, and then suddenly that taps with, and they realised that oh no, we haven't been investing in entry-level staff and we haven't been retraining people and we haven't been bringing juniors in. So there's a massive swell of companies who are interested in that and um, things that that you and I talk about a lot around um, work-integrated learning and different styles of education to really increase the the throughput and that that funnel of the number of people coming into into new entry-level jobs and the ability to retrain people. So I really hope that sticks. I really, you know, really hope employers don't go back to their old ways and just start looking at immigration as their their lever for um for increasing their workforce. The other thing that I hope will stick um is workplace flexibility. So I, as I said, have owned a number of software companies. I've always been really flexible as an employer. I've always believed that people can work from anywhere, um, that that you trust your people and you get the most out of them when you trust them. And yet there are so many employers that didn't realise that was possible until lockdown. So I really hope that sticks. But sadly, I spoke at a meetup last week and I heard from people in the audience that they were already being mandated to go back to their office, that their, their, their employers were worried about culture, which I find fascinating, um, because what kind of culture are they driving when you're mandating people to go back into a workplace with, every day when they, they don't want to be there every day? So I'm hoping that will stick, but that will have ramifications. The Wellington CBD and walking around the Auckland CBD, there are, there are vacancy signs, full lease signs everywhere. Um, there are cafes that have closed down. There are restaurants that have closed down because there aren't as many feet on the ground. And, and office buildings have got massive vacancies because businesses are downsizing their footprint to leverage having people working remotely as well. So there are negative effects of this, but from a satisfaction for the employees, from the, from the reduced carbon emissions, from the reduced cost of travel, the reduced mental load of traveling for many people, I really hope that flexible working sticks as well. If we look back from 10 years away back on now what from your perspective would you be thinking i'm glad they did that oh man that's a complex question um oh i'll tell you what the living in wellington this is a very very personal thing for me the um the subsidized public transport has been amazing 50 <laughs> percent off your train fares Glad they did that, and I hope that sticks as well. Got so many more people using public transport instead of in their cars. So that's been a behaviour-changing thing that's happened. I don't know whether it's happened in other parts of the country, but certainly in the Wellington region, that's really changed behaviour there. Um, And hopefully that trend will continue, and those people that have got in the train and in the buses will continue to use them and not move to that lever of jumping in their car every day. 
I have some questions to end the show and not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? <laughs> That's a really difficult question. It's terribly Because you've had so many. Oh, That's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens want... when you're involved in so many good things. I think the biggest surprise and something that I never talk about was I won an award um, that I wasn't expecting. Um, don't even know how I got to be the recipient of that award. But sadly, it was when all these lockdowns were happening in Auckland and there wasn't like the award ceremony, get up on stage and collect my award. It was done on Zoom. Um, and so that was a that was lovely, kind of lovely recognition from from some peers that um, and it was for my contribution to business and technology from the CIO Awards last year. So that was lovely. Well done on that. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? What's got you into the mansion? Uh, the fact that I never give up. I am so determined once I've got something that uh, you know, a, a wrong that needs to be righted, um, a thing that needs to be resolved, I will not give up. And some things take a long time. And I, you know, I can look back on the last 20 years and there are system change things I've been involved with that have taken, you know, 10 years, um, national government going out and the Labour government coming back in, for example, to make some significant changes. Um, and and I'm, and I'm just really determined Um my other superpower is that I'm a touch typist. And so while I haven't got the best memory in the world, I will be touch typing notes in meetings. So I keep really good notes. And I therefore don't think I drop the ball as much as I would be if I didn't <laughs> good notes. How do you, this is an extra question, but I want to know the answer. How do you balance that goal of system change, which, as you point out, can take a while? and doing the sorts of things that might make a difference more quickly on the ground? Yeah, that take, that's a really difficult view for people to take. Most people want that gratification of, I'm doing a thing now, it's going into the machine, I want to see it come back out, and I want I want to see that change immediately. Um, I, I honestly believe I didn't take that view until I was in my 40s. I'm now in my early 50s, so I'm 53 and, and I keep meeting fabulous women in their early 50s who, like me, are on the system change um, kind of journey. And I think that longer view, that multi-generational view, also it helps by going on my te ao Māori journey, the Mataranga Māori understanding um, has helped me with that, really embedding the, these are multi-generational challenges that we're trying to solve. And um and there's something in your 20s, you're really into instant gratification. Um, and that kind of gets bred out of you as you get older and your children grow up. And so maybe it's just a natural evolution. So do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, yeah, I guess I do consider myself to be, but I'm a, I'm not a poke your eyes out activist and I won't glue my hands to roads. Um, but I have, um, through the last national government, through this Labour government, had very, very direct meetings with politicians trying to to affect this change, and and they know that that's that's what I'm here for. But they also know that I do it nicely <laughs> with a smile <laughs> on my face. So, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I just feel so blessed to live in this great country and have 
so many great opportunities and um, I live with an amazing, amazing man who supports me and I'm incredibly lucky. I have two grown-up children. My daughter's about to turn 30 who um, I'm really blessed to have have them in my lives. Um, my nan is still alive at 96 and um, I write to her every week because I'm really blessed to have her. I think I just have this natural I'm grateful and therefore I think everyone else deserves to, to have this feeling and, and have this kind of life. So what is the biggest challenge or perhaps opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Um, so one of the things that I'm working on at the moment with a group of people is around this employer behaviours and belonging in the workplace and creating environments for people who we don't normally see in digital technology and other professional services environments. Um, So that's one of the biggest challenges. And the other is the one that we spoke of before, actually, is how do we make digital technology easy for people to understand? I think we've just, we've created this elitist, confusing situation and um and i really really want to lead the charge on how do we make it easier for everyone to understand i think that's incredibly important and lastly do you have any advice for our listeners i think my main advice i give people when they ask me for life advice is find what you're passionate about um and if you're passionate about something then how and, and you want to affect change then how can you make a difference and then my secondary part of advice is you don't have to start something new. Go and find some other like-minded people who already have a movement and join their movement and amplify what they're doing. You don't have to go and start a new thing, a new charity, a new initiative. Go down to your local marae, your local school, your local community hall. You'll find amazing people who are already trying to make a difference locally. Um, but find what you're passionate about first, because a lot of people really struggle with what their true passions are, where they can really make a difference. And I think that's my 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 main sage piece of advice I try to give as the old woman that I am now. Thank you for that. <laughs> Moera. Look, the work that you're doing uh, is just so important. And, you know, I think back to the beginning of the interview when you were talking about girls can do anything. Look what you've done. And you have done so much and you have added tremendous value to the world just by existing in it. So thank you for the work that you do and keep it going. And um, hopefully you will continue to inspire this generation of women who will come following up behind you and keep that work going. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for saying that. That's lovely. Thank you. Out of the moon. Listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, Tipu Kanga. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Golden Horse Out of the Moon. I'm Samuel Maynard, so it's Dayton with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani, and coming to us today from Auckland, but usually on the Capital Coast and in Wellington, 
we've been joined by Vic McLennan. Well, that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Marty Wah. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.